Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the We Believe to You Paranormal Podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Michelle. So as you've heard, we have a guest today. And before we officially introduce him, I kind of want to tell you guys how we got here because it's kind of it's kind of a funny little story. So as you know, we we go on Reddit and we get stories, and sometimes the stories on Reddit like specifically say that you know the person doesn't want to uh, their story to be shared on a podcast or anything like that. They just want to sh- like share it on Reddit. So a lot of times we just have to respect that, or we can reach, or I've reached out in the past. And I'm going to be honest, this is the first time where I've reached out to somebody who said that they didn't want to, you know, that they didn't want it shared that actually responded and and said, you know, I'd be glad to come on the podcast and share it. So I was like, amazing. Even this better. Was, yeah. <laughs> this was, I think, back in June, if, if I'm not mistaken. So um, our guest today, I reached out to him and he said, because I read his story and I was like, oh, I want to share this on our, our stories of high strangeness. And he said... Uh, that he would uh, prefer to share his own story. So I was like, you know what? That's fine. I respect that. Uh, and maybe there, he's got some other stories that we can share. So I was, you know, kind of bummed that I couldn't share the story for, for you guys. But at the same time, I was like, okay, I know we're going to have him on. So cool. <laughs> then come this past, uh, not oh, yeah. I guess, two stories of high strangenesses ago, uh, I didn't read the stories beforehand. So like I just picked out three stories real quick and I was like, well, I'll just read them as we go along. And um, I'm reading the entire story. I told Michelle, this is going to be a good one because I skimmed it really quick and it, it seemed really good. And I'm reading it and I'm uh, I get through the entire story. And then it just at the end, it says uh, that this story <laughs> is not to be shared on pot. I was like, no. So like literally, I think that whole episode <laughs> Uh, I think I read one talking. Yeah, yeah. it was Michelle talking pretty much the entire episode. I had one story on there because one of my I cut out because I I asked Michelle to cut because it just it didn't wasn't cohesive. It didn't make sense. And neither like even after we read it, it didn't really make sense to us as I was reading it. So I was like, you know what, scrap it. And then I was like, okay, this next one's going to be really good. And then I read it. And then I read that (laughs) at the end. I was like, dang it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) And then. You know, so Michelle tells her stories and then I, I reached back out uh, to this person on Reddit and I said, hey, you know what? We have a uh, we finally have an opening. Would you like to come on? And he was like, sure, I would love to come on and share my stories. Then as we're emailing back and forth on one of them, he says, uh, you know, what would you like me to share? And I told him, look, the story that I read, uh, you know, about your, uh, you know, one of the stories that I read, I would love for you to tell that. And he goes, yeah. And I also have this story about this, this and that. And I was like no way that's you too. I just read that story like a month ago and I tried to share it, but I read that at the end. And so we had to cut it and, you know, cause we were trying to respect your wishes. So yeah, uh, it turns out that two of them, like these stories that I really loved and wanted to share on the podcast were from the same person. And uh, yeah, we so have them on today. Yes. I'm excited <laughs> to introduce to you guys, uh, David, David, would you like to, introduce yourself a little bit further. Hi, uh, I'm David Parker. I'm in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm from Southern Ohio originally. And um, I just recently retired uh, almost 40 years as a registered nurse. I worked uh, OBGYN labor and delivery. I worked at a age unit back in the early 90s when that was a big issue for three years. Um, I did hospice for 17 years, including 
five years as a pediatric hospice nurse. And then I've worked in uh, uh, the burn center. I did pediatric burn and emergency room. Now I just sit around and it's yeah. <laughs> just, uh, absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Wow, with with all those credentials, yes, you deserve time to relax and do nothing. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. It's nicer than I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm sorry, just real quick. I'm, I'm also a nurse. Uh, I, so I'm excited to also hear if some of those stories as well. Um, I'm compared to you, I am still a baby nurse, or I guess I'm an adolescent nurse because I've only been at this for about uh, for what, fifteen years. So. I, I still got a ways to go, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear all your stories, everything that you have just from the beginning to the end, nursing related, non-nursing related, just everything. Well, I don't know. When I was a new nurse, we still, we still reused the needles on different patients. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. And, wow. And, uh, and when a patient left, we had to mop the floor. The nurse had to and scrub the bed down and we had to take the mattress up to the roof and air it out and bring a mattress down the stairs. I worked for Indian Health Services, and there was absolutely no nursing jobs when I became a new nurse. Wow. And it was like the last place I wanted to go. And then it was high-risk uh, OB labor and delivery, and I, I didn't want to do that at all. But uh, it just worked out. And mm. I had some, oh, my gosh frightening experiences. I had up to 18 patients at a time. I made $6 an hour and that was with shift differential. And uh, yeah. So when I'd leave to go home, I'd sit in the car and cry just thinking, oh gosh, I didn't do anything wrong. So I'm sure you feel the same. Nursing, I mean, (laughs) nursing's come a long way. I can tell you that much. Yeah. (laughs) Well, one of my, uh, my earlier stories, um, I was uh, a little boy back in the 1950s, early 1960s, and I lived with my grandmother in Southern Ohio. And we lived in this old farmhouse. Uh, we're out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, we had no running water. So we had a well in the backyard. So we had to you know, bring the water into the house and um, an outhouse out the back door and across the yard and down the hill. And that was our outhouse. And we just lived on a gravel road. And very often, the only person that would drive by in a whole day would be um, this guy in a pickup truck that delivered the mail. So we were very isolated. Our TV, we got one channel. But um, something would happen so frequently, maybe 50 or more times. And my grandmother knew it before it would happen. And she'd tell me, she'd say, get ready. They're coming. They're coming. Go get out on on the front porch. We had a swing on the front porch. And uh, yeah, I'd run out there and get on the porch, and my grandmother put her teeth in and put some lipstick on, mm-hmm. and comb her hair, and put a little powder on her face, and try to make herself look a, a little presentable. And uh, she would come out there and get on the porch, and just about the time that she would get down, uh, sit down on the porch, we'd hear people walking, and we lived uh, almost at the bottom of a hill, about halfway down. And then there was a ravine and a little creek and our barn and then up another hill. And we'd hear these uh, footsteps. And on the gravel road, it would crunch, crunch, crunch. Each step would crunch. And pretty soon we'd start to see these Civil War soldiers. And they were in blue. They were Union soldiers. And they were young. 
young boys, probably uh, mid-teens up to their early 20s. And there was probably 30 or more. And they would walk, uh, some of them in groups, four or five. Uh, some were stragglers, two or, or three, some all by themselves. And they would walk in front of our house. Um, and, and they looked battered. Um, there was holes in their uniforms and their uniforms were torn. A couple had guns. Most didn't have guns. Their uh, boots were dirty there. Um, a little bit of a, of a beard, though so many of them were so young. They looked probably 14, 15, 16 years old. And, uh, and just focused on the road, they would talk. And it was very clear to understand, to hear their voices and the different tones in their voices. But for some reason, even when I would come up to the road to them, I couldn't make out the words that they said. And, uh, and as a little kid, I was out here in the middle of nowhere. I thought, well, this would be great to have some playmates. I would love to have them, you know, come in and watch TV, uh, you know, get some water, feed them. And I would uh, run up to the road and talk to them, but they just totally ignored me. And they were completely solid. I was sure as a child that they were, they were real live soldiers or people dressed up in in these costumes and they were very thick it was uh, original uniforms looked like wool and and tears in them and uh, some had hats some didn't have hats and uh, they were like weak and tired and they would walk by our house go down the hill uh, across the bridge behind the barn and then up the next hill and disappear it just walk over the hill and kept on going. And then my grandmother would say, well, you know, let's go in and, you know, watch TV. Let's, you know, have supper. It, it was just a thing. It was, she didn't make anything big out of this. And sometimes it would happen once a week, sometimes every other week. This happened at least 50 times. And, uh, and at night, there would be, um, we'd have the windows open and, and the screens in the window. And I'd hear them at night sometimes. I would hear the crunching of their feet. And then pretty soon I'd hear the murmur of their voices. And the voices would get louder and louder as they walked in front of our farmhouse. And then they were gone. So we usually saw them late in the afternoon, maybe around four o'clock. I don't know if that had anything to do with anything. And why my grandmother knew that they were coming almost every single time, she just knew. And I never thought to uh, question her about it because I just thought this is normal. This, this goes on, everybody sees this. Um, so um, it was years later, I was, um, I did, probably about the time I was, a few, you know, six, seven years old, I moved into the city, a, a small farming community with my parents. So, and I've never been back to the house. I don't know if, if the house is even still standing there. I would love to go back. I'd love to see if the boys are still walking by. But um, years and years later, I was watching a documentary on the Civil War. And they said that after the war, when it was over, all these soldiers down south, the Union soldiers down south, they had no way to get back home because the horses were shot, the railroads were blown up, the roads were torn up. The only way that they could get back home was to walk. And for some of them, it was a thousand miles. And on the documentary, it said that so many of the soldiers that had made it through the war never made it home from that march home. <laughs> 
that has stuck with me as an adult, that maybe these young boys, you know, all this time, all the years that I saw them, are just trying to get home. That's all they want. And they were young. I can, I can shut my eyes, I can get my eyes open, and I can see their faces. Uh, certain ones, boys, and they were just torn up. Uh, their clothes are just torn up. They were shot. And, and trying to get home, and, you know, they had each other. And um, I would love to know if they made it home. Um, I keep thinking about going back and uh, just to see if I can see him. And maybe now that I understand a little bit more, I could touch him with these kids. Um, I was, I was, you know, five, six, seven. So I was kind of close to their age. I mean, now, now I'm an old man, but um, I have such a camaraderie with these kids, with these boys. It's, it's been a pivotal influence on my life to see helplessness and lostness and uh, to do everything I can while I'm still warm and above ground to see that that doesn't happen to other people. So, um, you know, what it was, I don't know. I don't know, but they were solid and I saw them and my grandmother saw them. So, you know, God bless them. I hope they finally found their way home. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's just hard to think about, you know, some of these, kids you know getting enlisted into an army that they didn't even want to probably they didn't even understand why they were going to war they were just sent out there to fill you know to fill some boots to fill the ranks that was it and then you survive all that and then not be able to get home anyway no it's just heartbreaking you know and a hundred years later to not be able to get home Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and their and their families, their families missing them and not knowing. I mean, I, I don't know. It was, I think about this a lot and it just, um, it just makes me push on and push on. Of course, I be, later became a nurse and started taking care of people. I think this was a, a big part of my life for um, how I kind of ended up as a nurse. Um, I, I, when I later moved into this, to us, it was just a huge metropolis. It was this tiny little farming community, but we had indoor plumbing. And I just thought, oh, this is so nice. <laughs> and um, uh, we probably, I think we, were, we weren't even a city yet. It was a town. And um, we were all completely surrounded by corn and cows. That was it, corn, 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 cows, cows, cows. So if you leave the city, corn, cows, that's it, for miles and miles and miles. And um, my folks belonged to a Methodist church in a nearby, even smaller town. And the town didn't even have a grocery store. That's how small it was. But it was all farmers. And uh, Sunday mornings, we would drive uh, down this little two-lane highway and, uh, and go to church. And you're driving down the highway, and it's corn, 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 and then a little farmhouse, and then corn, 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 both sides, just corn. And it was... Um, late spring, summer, corn was getting kind of tall. And as we're driving to church, there's my friend from church. His name was Lee, just standing by the side of the road. And I said, you know, my folks told my dad, slow down, there's Lee. And I said, oh, I don't see anybody. We just go right by him. And I said, well, he's out there standing uh, next to the corn. Um, maybe he needs help. 
And my mom says, well, I didn't see anybody. So we go to church and uh, when we're in church, there's Lee's parents and they've been crying. And so I just wonder, you know, what happened? And after the service, uh, my folks went up and, and talked to Lee's uh, parents. Yeah, his parents were much older. And they said, um, see, I was like 12 or 13 at the time. Lee must have been about 16. So um, he had just bought a motorcycle against his mother's wishes. Mm. She kept telling him, no, you can't have one. He bought one anyway. And he hadn't been home for two days. And they were so worried about him. They were, everyone was looking for him. No one could find him. And my mom told me, she goes, just be quiet. And I peeped up and I said, well, I saw him on the way, to, on the way here uh, between our two towns. He was standing by the side of the road. He's wearing black pants, white shirt, um, black shoes. And he was standing uh, almost in the cornfield, just staring out at the horizon. And, you know, Lee's parents just jumped on my folks. Well, why didn't you stop? And, you know, they said, well, we didn't see him. So we get back in the car and we're heading home. And Lee's parents are in their car following us. And I keep thinking, I, I hope he's still there because it, it, it all looked the same. It's just corn, corn for miles and miles and miles. And as we're driving down the road, here, here on the side of the road, there's Lee again. I said, there he is, there he is. Stop, stop, stop. My diet drives right by him. He said, I don't see anybody. And so the only way I can get my dad to stop is I opened the car door. And it made him slow down. I knew I am in trouble. But uh, he slowed down just enough. I jumped out of the car. Lee's parents are stopping right behind us. They say, what's going on? I says, there he is. Look at him. He's standing right there. Nobody else saw him but me. He was totally solid. And so I'm having to run a, a good bit to get back to where, um, where I'm seeing Lee. And they're back in their cars up, and my dad's screaming, get back in the car, get back in the car. You know, I knew I'm in trouble. And I finally get to this place where I'm standing on the road, and there's Lee. And I'm I'm right in front of him. And, you know, a two-lane highway, a two-lane, I guess, highway, one going this way, one going that way. And off to the side of the road, it went into a ditch, because um, it was Ohio, and it rains a lot. And the ditch maybe was like four or five, six feet wide and maybe about four feet deep. And then there was an embankment and uh, over the embankments, the cornfields. I think the embankment's probably like a levee. So when it rains a lot, that the water doesn't flood from the, mm. the field into the, into the road. Lee was standing on that em embankment and he was just like this, just n vacant. Um, no expression on his face, just staring at the horizon. He looked good. He looked fine. And I'm saying, Lee, your, your parents are worried. And he doesn't look at me. And uh, Lee's parents run up and they say, what? Who are you talking to? What's going on? I says, there he is. There he is. And my dad comes up and he's mad. You, you got to get in the car. My, I was a kid, a kid. I was small. And my dad was tall. And he saw something in the ditch. Well, the ditch had filled up with weeds, tall weeds, uh, at least three feet tall from all the rain there. He saw the handlebar of a, of a motorcycle. Here I go again. And my dad freaks and jumps in, in, into this gully and it had water in it. And he's pulling the lead, the weeds back and forth. 
and grabs onto the uh, handlebar and he says, it's Lee, he's gone. Mm -hmm. And evidently Lee went off the road and, and fell into the gully and because of the weeds, no one could see him or the motorcycle. And my dad said, you know, his calves were up to in mud and was pulling and pulling, trying to free Lee from the motorcycle. And he, he's pulling Lee's uh, body out and Lee's mom falls on the road and, and his dad's just freaking out. But I'm still seeing Lee completely solid, standing probably four feet above where my dad's, you know, pulling his body out, just staring out at the horizon. Um, so, you know, he, he's pulling Lee free. By then, other cars are stopping and they're coming and helping my dad. And, um, and they get Lee's mom up. And I'm looking at her thinking, oh, you know, what should I do? And just as I turned my head away from Lee, so he'd be about here, and I'm looking at his mom, I heard him say so slowly and deliberately, he said, I'm sorry, mom. And I told her, I said, Lee just says, I'm sorry, mom. Or she freaks. And, um, and my dad yells at me, says, you know, go get in the car. And I did. And there's all these men and, and they're pulling Lee up and, and <clears throat> doing whatever. So I sit in the car for about an hour, you know, while they're doing whatever they're doing with the body. And, you know, somebody probably went to get the sheriff and, um, you know, the parents, I, I don't know. I, I, I was far enough away. I couldn't see exactly what they were doing, but pretty soon, you know, my dad covered in mud comes back and, and gets in the car and, and my mom gets in the car and, and thanks me, you know, thank you for, you know, we're sorry we didn't listen. You know, <laughs> they're into this stuff. So yeah. you know, they weren't blaming me, but they're so sorry that they didn't listen. So we go home and it, of course it's a Sunday and, um, and it was an uneventful afternoon. And that evening, there's a knock on the door, and it's the sheriff and one or two other officers. I don't know if they're police or whatever. Um, um, uh, Police-like people come, and, and they want to question me, you know, how did you know where Lee's body was? And I told him, I said, well, you know, driving past him both ways, he was just standing there. I saw him standing there. And I don't know what clothing he was wearing, um, his body was wearing, but I saw him like what he would have worn in church. Mm -hmm. And um, Lee, I only knew Lee from church because we lived in two different communities. He went to a different school, but uh, I really liked him. He was just like a cool kid. And I always look forward to going to church and, and hanging around Lee. Well, they didn't buy it. And they thought, I killed Lee. They said, you ran Lee off the road, didn't you? And I was like, well, I'm 12, 13. I have an old beat up bicycle. How am I going to run somebody on a motorcycle off the road with a bicycle? And it was miles from our house out in, you know, cornfields. Why would I be riding my bicycle out there? I said, well, no, no, I saw the spirit and, and stopped. And the spirit gave his final message to his mother. I felt so honored that... I could see Lee and, and whether he was standing there for me to see him or he was just standing there because that's where he died. I don't know, but 
I got to see him. I got to see my friend. I got to help him. I got to help his parents. I was flying high with that until the police came. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't buy it. And they came back at least two more times. And then my dad called it off. So uh, when they would come back, he would send me to the to my bedroom and I'd shut the door. And he dealt with them. They supported me 100% on this. And, you know, it's, I'm just a child. Well, even though we went to two different school districts, because it's a farming community, I mean, you either grow cows or you grow corn. I mean, that's that's the industry in that area. Everybody knew each other. So the story of what happened with Lee went from you know his community to the farmers in, in the school where I went, and the story got around. And I told my peers the same thing. I said, this is what happened. I, I saw him, you know. And some people thought, well, that's cool. Others, as you mentioned, just kind of give you a stare and kind of back off and and leave. And the farming community blamed me. And all through high school, they would like shove me into the lockers when they'd walk by and say, that's for Lee. And, uh, you know, when you're going to come clean about what you did with Lee? Uh, It it was... uh, I was blamed no matter what. And as soon as I graduated high school, which was uh, 1973, um, I got out of that town. And in fact, my parents got out of that town too. Um, They were looked down. They were chastised. They were both school teachers and, um, you know, covering up for me and and what it was I did to Lee. So um, last Saturday was my 50th class reunion. And um, about a month prior to the class reunion, I get some calls from my old classmates that says, there's a group of people here. And because of the reunion, they're still blaming you for Lee. And they're trying to contact distant relatives to him to see if they can open up this case and investigate me. Harming my friend. And all this time, it's like, it's been a joy in my life that I can help my buddy. So um, one of the classmates called me up and said, hey, Parker, when are you going to come clean about Lee? We're going to get you now. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to this, my 50th class reunion. And that's a big one. Um about just a little more than a week before the reunion. So just a reunion was Saturday. So like the weekend before that, I get a call from my classmate that's arranging the class reunion. And she made it official that I am not invited to go to my own reunion uh, because of all this. And it's like, well, I wasn't going to go anyway. So, uh, but to be the only person uninvited to your class reunion for something I didn't do. And, uh, you know, and I said, I'll take a polygraph. I'll be glad to take, I would love to take a polygraph. Um, and they said, um, you know, you know, whatever, um, you know, you're not coming. And it's like, well, fine, I'm not coming. I had actually thought about, in a way I thought about going, cause I thought I'll be close to the farmhouse. I haven't been back to Ohio in 40 years. Um, and I thought it'd be fun to go back there and see if the soldier boys are still walking by. And, um, but anyway, you know, the universe uh, takes you different directions. But um, 
what like a what a it's like a blessing and a curse like a blessing because you're able to help your you know your friend and they're able to to find a body to be able to bury him and then you know to just everyone turn on you and accuse you of doing that like it's i'm a 12 year 13 yeah when we went back to church that next sunday and um you know, I, we were looking forward to it, hoping, you know, these parents are there, we can give them a hug and everything. We went back and everybody just glared at us. Uh, Lee's parents just glared at me, just stared, stared me down. I'm a kid and thinking, I, I gave you the last message from your son. I found his body. Um, we went back a few more times and then my parents were called, uh, called to one side and the minister spoke to them. And, um, I don't know what was said, but when I got in the car, my mom said, we're not coming back. And I think we were asked not to return because of me. Wow. So, uh, that's just, it, it hurts me just to hear that. Um, I just, this, this was one of the stories that i had read and uh yeah definitely reading it are on like us reading it it's would not have done justice. the story justice <laughs> yeah. it's just it's so much more powerful coming from from you and you know i'm sorry that you you went through all of that and um it's just it like michelle said it's a blessing and a curse and and it just so I, I don't even know if I can blame the time, just the, the, the size of the community, just being so close minded to those types of things. And I mean, cause even now you, you, you can experience those kinds of things, but um, I know you mentioned something when you were talking about your parents that they were, they, I don't know how you, you worded it. Like they were in, into this or they were uh, they about you being able to see that. Did, did they experience things like that oh, as yes. well? Yes. And, you know, and we're, I, my mom lived, um, when she was a little girl, lived in the farmhouse that I lived in with my grandmother. And they were, my parents were going to school and college, and, and my grandmother needed someone there. So that's why I lived there with her. And that's a tiny little community, but they're f totally old fashioned farm people are into what's in nature. And that includes spirits. And uh, yeah, it's not that they chase them down. It was just a part of their reality. I mean, people died young back then. Um, uh, my grandmother used to tell me when, when she was young, they used to dig the graves in the fall and fill them with uh, leaves and sticks because when people died in the winter, it, they couldn't dig a hole. So they went ahead and prepared, knowing someone's not going to make it um, uh, through the winter. So it was such a part of their reality. There was relief when, when a spirit returned. My parents saw them. Uh, not as much as I did, but then I was the kid, and I think I think kids are a little more open to it. They're mostly yeah. in in alpha and theta brainwave activity, and and when you resonate with the frequency that spirits normally resonate, that's when you have that communication. So um, it, it's not that they're not there, and people don't you know don't see them because they're not there. People don't see them because they're not resonating at that same level. It's like turning into the to the same radio dial, you know, to get that clear picture. And as a child, you do. And I have all my life. It's just always been something in my life. But I was I never had it shamed out of me. 
Mm-hmm. I was never told, That's no, good. you don't see that. My friends saw, you know, would say that, but yeah, that just brings like a warmness to my heart that you at least <laughs> you at least had your your immediate family that you know was there for you no matter what and believed you and you know even when this happened you know they they were there to support you and you know everything that you were going through and never you know chastised you for that and or you know joined in with the community and looked at you weird because you saw what you saw and so that while you still had to deal with everybody else at least within your own home within your only own family unit you had that support you had peace yeah Yeah. i'm still holding on to it as a blessing i am so glad i i found lee had i not found him had his spirit not been there it would have been winter before those weeds would have died down and they would have found his body he would Mm -hmm. have been missing for you know five six months and uh the weeds were big and and to get to share his last words his regret for buying the motorcycle against his mom's wishes and and then of course dying um she, she got the final message so no matter what people think about me i'm holding on to i did the right thing and i'm grateful i was there and this is a positive wonderful experience i hold dear in my life and that's been it's been like 55 years now and, yeah. and i can still see him. i can see him clear as day in my mind Wow. It was an honor. It was an honor to serve my friend Lee. And that's that story. Um, uh, I was curious because I, I know you, you mentioned that your grandmother, you know, used to see the, the, the soldiers as well. Um, of your parents, like who's, I guess, whose mother was that? And do you mom's. think, oh, his mom, sorry yeah. but, um, if I missed that. Um, is that something, do you think that kind of, goes generation to generation. What, or, could it be genetic or is yeah. it a spiritual generation from generation? That's a good question because I've wondered about that. I don't know. The um, um, And maybe it's because we had just brought up that's the way you think. Um, my dad saw spirits not nearly as much as um, um, my mom's family. And I don't know about my grandfather, my grandparents on my father's side much. I only knew my grandfather and he was, uh, he had a stroke and couldn't talk. But um, my dad was definitely into things that were non-physical. Um, this is a, a, a deviation away. Um, in 1965, when I was about 10 years old, we were driving by um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And... Um, my dad was driving, it was a station wagon, dad was driving, and my mom was in the front seat, and I'm in the back seat reading a comic book, and I remembered the comic book, so I was able to look it up uh, so I could make sure, you know, that I had the accurate year. I was 65, and as we went by, my dad slowed down and pointed out a building to my mom and said to her, that's the building where we stored the flying saucers and the alien bodies. Oh, and he went on to shit. describe how the outside, how the inside of the building looks totally different than what you think it would from the outside, and how there's a secret room that you don't notice that space is missing. And he talked about the flying saucers and the bodies, and then I peep up and say, I want to see the flying saucer. Well, my dad didn't realize I was listening, so he quickly changed the 
flight. And he says, oh, uh, only special people get to see the flying saucer. Let's go get ice cream. And, and off we went. And every now and then for years, my dad would stop me out of the blue and just say, do you believe in flying saucers? I say, well, you know, I guess so. Why not? Uh, what do you think? And he would say, oh, they're out there. And I wished I would have pushed. I wished I would have yeah. asked more questions. Me too. <laughs> yeah. He died before all the Roswell stuff resurfaced oh, in the late 70s, yeah. around 1980 or so. But still, now and then, it, it had a heavy weight on him. And um, I'd hear him and my mom talk about it. And I would just kind of sit and listen. And he would, who knows what he had, uh, uh, what he had done when he was in the military. And he was in the, um, the army, army and air force were the same back in the forties. He was in the, um, military from 1945 to 1952. And then the army and air force separated in 1947, which would have been the Roswell. And, and then that second thing uh, in 52, um, where they found the other saucer or the other craft uh, north of Roswell. Was he a part of that? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to read into more than, um, than that. But um, his dad um, lived in uh, northern Ohio, and he was a principal of a high school. And he had a clipping out of a newspaper from 1919 about him seeing a cigar-shaped a cigar craft flying over the trees and houses and then zipping off in the sky. And uh, whenever we'd go visit, we'd pull out a scrapbook and, you know, read it. And it's like, oh, that's so cool. But he was uh, paralyzed from a stroke, so he really couldn't explain. So, so my grandfather saw one. My dad had something involved with it. And, and who knows? Who knows? I had two boys, but um, they never got to grow up. So, you know, that's not spiritual. It's UFO-y, but um, I think still it opens you up to possibilities of stuff, you know, more than the physical world. More. Well, I can tell you right now that it seems like your family or your parents would have been like, I love my parents. I know they listen to this, so don't get offended, guys. But <laughs> um like literally aliens on your dad's side, ghosts on your mom's, like that just seems like the perfect, wonderful family <laughs> to be a part of. It's like two of my favorite things. And the moment you said the Air Force Base, I knew where you were going with it. And oh, I, I don't wow. know if you noticed, I perked up because I was excited to hear. Um, but we, that's. We also talk about aliens, but don't uh, we, it's, we don't get many people who have you know, UFO experiences or experiences and stuff, and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I had one UFO experience and that was the Phoenix lights. And I was 30 feet underneath it. It went right over. Oh, wow. my head. And that's when I became interested in UFOs. I really wasn't into them, but, uh, and then after that, it's just, I want answers to what I saw, mm. but um, my mom was into everything. And if there was like a psychic somewhere, she would pack me up in the car and off we'd go. <laughs> and then Ohio. <laughs> We had the last four of the Shaker religion. I don't know if you ever heard about it. It no. started in the late Shakers. 1700s and was big in the 1800s. And it died out because you weren't allowed to marry or reproduce. So they always just had to uh, enroll people. And um, there were four Shakers left in northern Ohio. 
and they were in their 90s. And somebody did a newspaper story on them. And my mom contacted the author, got a hold of the, the um, shakers, and we got an invitation to her home. So my mom's packing me up. And up we go, takes me out of school, and up we go. And I got to meet the last four shakers on the planet. And we went to psychics, uh, snake handling churches. She heard about those. Off we went. We just went to everything. And we even went over to Indiana, Jim Jones from the oh, wow. temple. Wow. He had his church over there. And I went to his church a few times, uh, actually quite a few times. And then later he went off to California and then all the craziness went on. Uh, none of that was going on when I knew him, but I spent Christmas with Jim Jones. Um, what a life. <laughs> I'm like blown away. Wow. Yeah, and my, I loved it. My mom just, you know, whatever it was, off we went. And she yeah. got involved in Surat Chabda Yoga, a group called Ekankar, uh, the ancient science of soul travel. And you practice out-of-the-body travel. So starting in eighth grade, I'm doing these meditations and uh, where you tune in to the, the um, universal uh, light and sound uh, called yeah. the Shabda. And to you know pull you to higher uh vibrational levels uh, so you know being in this cow town <laughs> yeah seriously cows, wow. we're doing all this stuff it, you know we were odd we were odd but i'm so thrilled i'm so thrilled yeah. to get to do that they were hippie vibes before hippies were yeah, a thing. yeah. Y'all would have been my favorite family. I can tell you that. <laughs> wow. There were many families that wouldn't let their kids come play with me. Um, wow. I only had a of couple course. friends. Yeah, only a couple. And, um, you know, but what the hey, um, you just make best what you got. And, and um, you know, my mom was taking me to all these places and I was meeting all these wonderful people and they were interesting and, you know, Small town uh, people weren't, so yeah. the the void was filled. That's good. So um, later on, I um, I had two wonderful little boys. Um, I hope I can make it through this, um, but this is a great one. This has enriched my life. This changed my life so much, and. Uh, when they were seven and nine, they were playing in, in their yard. I'm in the house. Their mother had died three months prior. She oh, my God. Ovarian cancer. It's just me and the boys. And um, I was a nurse. And so anyway, there was this, all this commotion outside. And people screaming and crashing. And I run outside and someone thought it was um, a good idea to drink and drive and drove up in the yard and ran over my sons oh my gosh i go out there and there's all this red i think what's all this red you know i'm a nurse i should know I just, what was it what was it the neighbors were screaming and running there's a car in the yard and and uh, you know what are these things there? And then finally, it hit. Uh, those were the bodies of my two boys. Jesus Christ! Uh, so it's devastated. Um, I have a 
is supported by insane in-laws that, that were absolutely worthless. Um, they came in and you know, they made the arrangements and they had all their agendas and uh, I get through that. Um, um, finally they leave and it's me alone in the house. And, you know, I'm used to kids running up and down the hall and, and uh, you know, where's the Cocoa Krispies and Oh, uh, Dad, I need this, Daddy. And then all of their silence, just silence, just absolutely screams. It's just me. So, um, uh, I, uh, I was a nurse. My supervisor was absolutely one of the most wonderful people on earth and totally supported me. I said, I just can't come to work. And, you know, I went on leave of absence and ended up their leave of absence. It it continued much longer than I actually had anticipated. So um, I just shut the door and stayed inside the house. I just couldn't leave. I couldn't leave the front door. And I had big picture windows in the uh, living room and I had some buckets of paint. I couldn't stand looking at the light. So I painted the windows and I blocked out the light. And I pulled the curtains, and I just sat in the house for a solid year. And uh, luckily, I had some savings, and you know, so I could make the house payment. And, and uh, I had some absolutely wonderful friends, and not one of them judged me, and not one of them yelled at me, saying, "You got to snap out of it. You got to do this. You got to do that." They just loved me, and they would come over and bring food, and just act normal. They just act normal. Um, they didn't hug me and say, poor David. They just uh, uh, fed me. They just fed me. And, um, uh, and I just sat there. I, I got huge. And I ordered pizzas. And the pizza people kind of got to know me. And you know, um, I had cash or and my friends would go to the bank and get cash for me. So anyway, a year later, I'm still sitting there in total darkness. And uh, it was a, a weekday morning. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. And there was this um, talk show host. Um, she was very annoying, but I watched her. There was nothing else on. I didn't have cable. I had three three channels. Her name was Sally Jesse Raphael. You don't oh, know. Oh, Sally. Oh, she had those red glasses on it. She's yeah. irritating. But you know what else? And I was watching her, sitting on, kind of laying back on the on the sofa, and watching Sally. And then in the corner of the room, it looked like sparklers, those little things you light the sticks. Mm. A couple of them going, and then there was more and more and more. And then it was like uh, maybe three feet wide, maybe a foot tall, like a rectangle of these sparkles. Um, white, white, silvery sparkles, thousands of them, like diamonds glistening. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I got a, a, an electrical fire. Um, I, you know, now what am I going to do? So um, all at once, a voice, two voices, one voice and then another voice came in. And it was like young adults, uh, very well educated and very angry, um, started talking to me. And the first one said, you got to let go. 
we have an incredibly important job to do, and you are holding us back. We have so such important work that needs to be done. There are so many relying on us. This is so important, but we can't get anything done because of you. You have decided to hold on to us, and you have decided to stop us from doing what we need to do. And then the other young man probably sounded like, you know, like they were 26, 27, 28 years old, very uh, well-spoken, very well-educated, and says, you got to let go. This is this has to stop right now. We are not going to put up with it any longer. You've been holding on. You've been interfering, and it has to stop. It was like I was in HR in trouble. You know, it was like I've been pulled over by the cops, and they're yelling at me. And I'm, HR. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh yes, sirs. You know what? Well, what did I do? Uh, yeah, what's going on? And the only nice thing they said was once one of them said. Um, we appreciate what you did, but that was then, and this is now, and you're hanging on, and it has to stop right now, right now. We're done. No more. And I'm like, oh, yes, sirs. I'm sorry. I I had no idea that you know, uh, missing you was uh, messing up whatever it is that you need to do now. And I says, well, stop it, stop it. This is it. This is it. This is the last word. And then the voices stopped, and then the sparklers started getting smaller and smaller and smaller and went down, and there was nothing. And I'm sitting there just shocked that I was just told off, told off royal, told off big time, and shocked that I knew it was my boys. I could tell it was my boys. They died. They were seven and nine, and these were like adults a year later. And for... It's like, what? So I got up and turned off the TV, took a shower and shaved, you know, I trimmed my hair. I just let it go wild. And uh, I had to call someone to come jump my car because I hadn't started my car in a year. It was just covered with dirt. And I drove to the hospital where I worked. So like an hour and a half later, I'm filling out an application for a job. And, uh, you know, they knew me. They knew what had happened. My boss had moved on to some uh, to, uh, to some other position or some somewhere else. So I didn't have her as a resource, but my peers knew me. And the next day I was in orientation. I turned with 360 degrees uh, being told off. And um, them needing the freedom from my attachment gave me the freedom for my attachment. And mourning my boys changed from, uh, from an agonizing, painful existence to just missing them, to a healthy missing. There's a difference between mourning and missing. And um, uh, I've never been back since. I never went back to that. I never, I've never seen them again. And, um, but I never went back to that dark place. And something that was so cathartic, and I wasn't realizing until later, it was so good at my healing from this, is I had to get these little tiny razor blades and start scraping the paint off uh, the window. And it took months to get all the I mean, I really slapped paint on that. And as quickly as, as I put up the dark barrier from the light, it took much longer 
for it to peel off, but the light was still there. Then the light never gave up. I might have turned my back on the light, but it was still there. It's always there. And when you think things can't get worse, and you think you've been forgotten, and you think everything's been taken away from you, the light's still there. You just kind of got to turn around or start scraping the paint off that you put up. So every time, you know, every day I'd scrape a little bit more. And I got so much out of doing that. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm never going to not look at the light. It's, uh, this is too valuable. This is, this is what life's all about. And um, um, finally, you know, everything, all the paint was off and I'm driving around and I got friends. But this calling came to me um, to do something different with my life. We had AIDS going on at the time and, and uh, all these young people with HIV and AIDS. And, and the hospitals were allowing nurses not to take care of them um, because of their religious rights. So they had nowhere to go. Somebody had opened up an old nursing home uh, here in Phoenix, down on McDowell Road called Phoenix Shanti. And uh, we opened up a 55-bed uh, HIV care unit. We could do some things. We couldn't do hospital things, but we could do supportive care. And so many had nowhere to go. Their families threw them out. We would open the door and there would be um, AIDS patients just dumped on the sidewalk. Their, uh, their families would just put them out and they were afraid to come knock on our door. A Domino's wouldn't deliver to us. Um, I, I said, well, you don't have to come in and you know, we'll bring money out. They said, no, we don't want to touch your money. Um, so it's like, after this experience, it's like, yes, I'm going to do this. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be there for these people. I'm going to be, the, I'm going to be scraping the paint off their window. And um, uh, we were open for, uh, for three years. And of course, all of our patients died. We had uh, one medicine that was very toxic and, and no one knew, you know, what was a, an appropriate dose and, and what was a lethal dose, but it's all we had, so we gave it to them. And uh, it was an absolutely beautiful place to work. And um, uh, unfortunately, I ran out of money and it closed. And I became a hospice nurse. I had wonderful experiences um, with my hospice patients and the families. I don't know, am I taking up too much time? You uh, kind of... No. no. <laughs> so, yeah. I... I, this is already such a special episode. The fact, one, the fact that we're already at an hour and I'm like, how did this even happen? <laughs> but um, the, the, your, your stories, your experiences, like, I, you're taking me on a roller coaster ride of emotions because you have these beautiful moments and these tragic moments just weave together so beautifully. Um, I am, I think I could probably speak for Eric as well that. I think we're just kind of entranced in everything that you're saying right now and, and your experiences. They, they're, they're beautiful and tragic. And um, I mean, we, we can definitely keep going, I, but also don't want to, to keep, you know, keep you and want to be respectful of your time. Um, if, if you have anything else to share, I mean, we are all ears. <laughs> yeah. I also want to, before we go on, like th this, this story about your sons was the first story that I saw on Reddit where, that's what made me reach out to you to begin with. And again, I just have to say that I understand why you want to tell these stories because someone reading these stories, while they are amazing stories, 
the there's person no reading there's that you would not do these stories justice like y- you have to tell these stories and now i understand why you are so uh you know adamant about wanting to tell them yourself so you know i i respect that and it's just you know like michelle said yes she spoke for me as well but you know it's just your life is it's it's like every everything that those things that have happened to you are just such a movie you know in that there's this tragedy and then just this you know out of this tragedy comes this you know beauty in your life you know and even the metaphor of the paint on the windows is just you know amazing you know it's just i have a tattoo on my wrist because specifically just like you said about that even in when you're at your lowest low you're the, the darkest point of your life that there's always a light like that hit me in my gut in my heart in my soul <laughs> because that is uh some like a lesson that i learned you know a few years ago that it just that has really stuck with me and hearing someone else say it like i, I think i kind of needed that right now so it's always seems synchronistic but it's like it's too on the nose to be <laughs> synchronistic we can turn our backs on it it never turns its back on us and it, whatever you call it it doesn't matter i don't think it cares what you call it it's there and it uplifts us and it feeds us and it nurtures it we exist because it loves us that's life in one sentence that's if i ever if i have a headstone i I probably won't but if it does that's what i wanted to say um soul exists because god loves it that's it there's nothing else that's everything and I'm old now. I'm old now, and, and, and stuff just gets more and more simple. And, you know, I, I see so many people, and they're reading this book and that book and this book and that book and that expert and this expert, and they just get all confused. You don't need that. Put your foot on a good spiritual path where you feel it and allow it to have the to give you the experiences that you need to have so you know that it's there you somebody said years ago his name was paul twitchell and he said god is caught not taught you catch it mm-hmm. every now and then a the little dime on the sidewalk you know the, the wind blowing in your face just at the right time or you see a flower and you and and that was your grandmother's favorite flower or something the universe whispers it rarely conks you over the head i got conked over the head a couple times but rarely does it does it knock you over the head it whispers and i was thinking about this recently why does it whisper because what happens when someone whispers you lean closer you know what was that it wants you to lean closer to it. It's a direct connection. There's always a direct connection between that universal force and you, and no one can stand in that way. You can't even stand in that way. You can think you can stand in the way, but you don't. You know, um, uh, The door to the universe opens inward, and when you remove the obstacles, it, the door opens little bit by little bit by little bit. And if you're separated from that universal source, it's because you're pushing the door shut and it's you doing it. It's not the, it's not that spiritual force. Just relax, let go, get rid of the things that stand between that you have placed between you and it. 
and, and that pain will chip off. That pain will peel off quick for you. I got one more story that I had written. I love this one. If we got time. Yes, yes. Of course. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as a hospice nurse, um, we had a, uh, a 10-bed inpatient unit, and it was like a, a, a setting with all these different houses for uh, long-term care, and our hospice company um, rented one, and we did end-of-life care. Our average uh, life expectancy on our patients was 72 hours. And, uh, but some people would come in, maybe they needed some pain management, and we'd get their pain meds adjusted and then send them back home. So you know, uh, we had that going on, but so many of our patients just came in to die. Their families had their backs up against the wall. They were exhausted. They were terrified. They were afraid of doing the wrong thing. And, of course, everybody was afraid of getting grandma hooked on morphine. And it's like, who cares at this point? Let it flow like wine if they need <laughs> to be comfortable. And, and to make that transition just as, as peaceful as possible. And I came in um, one day and we had some admissions um, the, the shift before. And there was this woman there. I don't know what it was about her. I connected with her. Before I walked in the room, I connected with her. And that's one thing with all that I've been through and, and being a nurse, you know, you're right-brained and you worry about the potassium, the calcium, and the blood pressure and all this. You know, you've got all this analytical stuff. I also did so much um, uh, left brain, and I felt, I felt what was going on with the patient. And I could feel what was going on with the patient before I even went in the room, and especially with hospice, because it's hard to do a no-no in hospice. And um, I before I went into this room, as with most of my patients, I just had this incredible feeling about her. It's like, I like her. And I go in and she's um, non-responsive. Um, she's getting like chain stoke uh, respirations, getting uh, close to the end, as most of our patients were. And uh, I went in and um, I tidied her up and repositioned her and, and made her uh, look a little more comfortable. I could, you know, as a nurse, you can kind of feel um, if you're putting them in the right position or what they need, do they need some pain medicine? Even though they can't speak, there's a, uh, their brow will furrow or they'll grimace and, or you get that feeling, you know, what the heck, let's give them some pain medicine. We took such good care of our, our hospice patients. And as me, the RN, there'd be an LPN and a CNA if no one called off. And 10 patients, terminally ill patients, plus their families were there. Um, we were busy and, um, sometimes the, uh, the families were much more work than the patients were, but we supported everybody and we would move the families in. We met, uh, put some blankets on the floor and, and they stayed there and we had a little kitchen and I'd cook for them. Um, but anyway, there was something special about this lady and, you know, I came in, um, we would, um, uh, go down the hall from patient to patient to patient. And uh, we would reposition them, we would bathe them, we had fluff their pillow, um, I would give them their medication, get them comfortable, go on to the next. And then once we were done with all 10 patients, we'd do some paperwork and start it again, just go around um, the row all night long. I was doing night shifts at the time. Well, uh, somebody down the hall needed something special. I forget what it was they needed. So I was going down the hall to check um, 
that patient. And when you go down the hall, we had rooms on either side of the hall. Of course, you peep in, just to make sure everything's okay, you know, looking up. Well, I go by this lady's room, and she's sitting up at the side of the bed. The side rolls were down. And she's sitting up, smiling, looking great. Her hair looked good. She looked young. Oh. And, uh, and I look at her, and it's like, hey, you know, looking good. And I walk down the hall, and then I stop. And I think, oh, wait a minute. Uh, she's in a coma. So uh, I take steps backwards. <laughs> what did I see? And I go back and I look at her and the side rolls back up and she's laying in bed and just having, um, you know, slightly agonal respirations. I think I put some uh, oxygen on her. I'd given her some morphine just recently, like 20, 30 minutes prior to that. And she's uh, laying down and, um, and looked old. Um, when I uh, just saw her just seconds before sitting up, she looked like she was 35 and her hair looked good. She was smiling and she was uh, sitting at the side of the bed with two legs. And that got my attention because when I had bathed her earlier, she had one leg. She had one leg had been amputated at the hip and it had been an old surgery because it was long since healed. I don't know what happened. But I saw her, she had two legs and, you know, now she's back in bed with one leg. And, and I just thought, are you stretching nose wings? <laughs> are you being the butterfly that's just leaving the cocoon and stretching the wings and drying them out and, yeah. and uh, getting ready to fly off? And I just, it was it was such a glorious, wonderful experience and a feeling that I got from this comatose woman. And I said, I bet you are. You're getting ready to go, aren't you? And I said, well, go for it. Go for it. You're ready. Uh, I saw you in spirit. I saw what your spirit looks like. You're happy. You're healthy. You've got two legs. You know, go. Uh, you're in hospice. We're not going to hold you back. So, you know, I go on and take care of everybody. And at the end of my 12-hour shift, I checked on her, and you know, she's still laying in bed. So I drive home. I get in uh, the front door. I start to go down my hallway, and there she is standing in my hallway, completely solid. Her hair looked gorgeous. She looked like she's 30, 35 years old, smiling like you, you know, like just a huge <laughs> smile. And she has like a robe or something on. And she had two legs. And just, uh, I thought, uh, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you look great. I'm uh, glad you're happy. Um, uh, go have this incredible rest of your existence. And uh, she slowly faded away and she was gone. I go to the phone and I call work. And I say, hey, you need to you know, check the lady, you know, in room whatever, room six. I says, I think she just passed. And uh, the, uh, the nurse that re um, came in and replaced me at the end of the shift, she goes, okay, let me, let me check, put the phone down and went in. And a minute she came back and said, oh, you're right. She just, she just died. How did you know? I said, I just saw her. She was in my living room. She yeah. showed me her beautiful, glorious new body, her, her healthy, wonderful, happy soul. And, you know, they're like thinking, oh, this is so cool. These are hospice people. Of course, they think it's cool. They see this <laughs> stuff too. 
That has been one of the joys of my life. I have told that story so many times, and I'm so happy I get to share it with you and anybody that's watching. What a blessing, this woman, I don't even know her name, that she did that for me. And why me? I don't know. Well, you know, why did she do that for me? Of all people you know, with her family or something she could have appeared to, and maybe she did, who knows? I saw her, and I saw her solid. And, uh, and she gave me that final gift, you know, like I gave my gift for Lee. I mean, this one's like almost paying me back and giving me this gift of happiness and joy. It's like life continues. Life goes on, you know, spend this time while we're here. It's nice to focus on things that are physical and, and, you know, we do our jobs and we study and we, and we do this, that, and the other, but eventually we drop the physical body. And that includes the brain. We drop the, the brain, but soul goes on. So I focus more now, now that I'm getting older, more on things that I'm going to be able to take with me. And that's lifting people up, uh, seeing people as high in the light as I can possibly see. Because whenever you see people and lift people up and see people as high as you can see them, it lifts you up too. And I think that we take with us. That's what's important. That's what's important. The rest goes in the ground or goes in, the, in an urn. Focus on what you're going to have for eternity. That's what we're here for. This is school. I I, I am with you 100%. And, and I, again, with the synchronicities, Eric and I, I mean, this, this episode that I'm about to reference hasn't even aired yet, but... We we kind of we kind of took a little bit of a dark turn uh, in our conversation, and, and the, the topic of death came up. And I, I don't know what what you're sharing right now is just. I feel like we we could like wish we would have heard that then too while we were having this discussion because I, yeah, I mean everything that you're saying that the the physical and it's not that's not important. That's not what makes you happy. It, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. It's what you take with you and it does feel so good to, to lift people up and, and when they smile because you made them smile and something as simply as saying like, I like your shirt. And like that just, yeah. Talk about the higher vibrational, you know, stuff like that's sorry. I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm rambling a little bit now, but um, I, and I also just wanted to comment on that metaphor of, of her, you know, being in a cocoon and being a butterfly and like spreading her wings into that. That is so beautifully said. Um, poetic. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that and stop rambling. That's what I said to her. That's what I said to her. When I went back in the room and she was, and she's laying there in, in bed and I spoke to her like this and I was so happy, you know, is that what you're doing? Yeah. You know, I was like, I was happy and smiling. It was like, we were old friends. There was some connection. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was. And, um, and, and I can tell, very much so that you have this kind and gentle heart and, and are very empathetic. And, and I think that is why you have, well, one, I think that is why you were a nurse for as long as you were and were in the medical field, because those are where the true angels are. They, I mean, we, we need people like you being, you know, care providers and, and not even just care as far as like, okay, here's your injection, here's your pain meds, but, you know, giving a little bit more of yourself than, I think some people are willing to do. Um, so, I mean, I know I have never been your patient, but thank you on behalf of them for, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that, that you're a wonderful nurse. 
I, I kept all my nurses' notes, and um, I was bedside for three thousand six hundred deaths. And then uh, of the hospice, I did five years of pediatric hospice, and and it was so interesting the stories that the kids that we had that were at least able to talk, their vision of the next life and the beings that showed up for them were so different than the beings that showed up for the adults that would tell me, you know, who was there and family members. And, and maybe we can do an episode if you like. Yeah. Road. <laughs> I mean, Patrick, we would, yeah, of course. I mean, we would love to have you back. I, I mean, cause I know you probably have, stories galore of just based off your you know how many years you were a nurse you know what i mean um i would i mean me being like a, a nurse as well i'm i'm an i'm an lvn or an l i guess lvn lpn it's the same same thing um but just i i would love to hear your perspective because i i don't know we may have had we've had other you know people in the field and i always enjoy talking to them you know because um it's relatable something yeah that it's you've relatable experienced as well yeah yeah and and just everything that you're saying you know uh something that michelle said i feel actually that we need more people like you you know in the field because unfortunately yeah there are just some people who are doing this job to collect a paycheck and, and it's just horrible. And, and, you know, uh, and you, like you said, being, you know, about being right brain and left brain, just the, just some of those, some nurses out there, and I'm not saying all, but there are some nurses out there who are so worried about, you know, everything being perfect as far as like giving this and giving that and how much and this and that. And, and they just forget about why we're nurses to begin with. You know, I've had hospital. I, I worked, I worked in a nursing home for about five years and I, and, um, towards the end, we started getting a lot more hospice patients, but wow. you know, they weren't, yeah. But the thing is they weren't, um, a lot of them, they were long-term hospices. I, what they were starting to call it. So some of the hospice patients that we did get did only stay with us for, you know, maybe a few weeks, a few months, and then they were gone. But it got to the point where I had a hospice patient that was there with us for a few, like, I don't know, over two years, you know, before anything. Yeah. So I know there was this one patient in particular that was, was you, we were giving them oral morphine and um, I remember the nurse, I went to go give a dose and he tells me, dude, she's already had like so much. And I was like, dude, the order says that we can give this much morphine this often. And the person like it needs it, you know, so I'm going to give it. And he goes, you're going to kill her. And I was like, well, I, in my head, I was like, I don't know. I might, I may have said it, but, and it sounds insensitive, but it's like, well, they're dying anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? So just let them be comfortable. You know, why do you want them to suffer on the way out? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Give them just let them have what they can have as often as they want it or need it. You know what I mean? Why are we limiting them when, you know, they're getting ready to go? Why, why are you trying to make them suffer on the way out? You know, just yeah. let them be comfortable and let them leave in peace, you know? So I don't know. I, I, when you, when you said that, I re that really like struck a chord with me and, and just in general, like my whole thing, a friend of mine, her, her parents once asked me, like, why are you, why do you want to be a nurse? Why don't you just go for your dog to become a doctor? 
I was like, because that's not what I want. Like, I want to be with that person. I want to be with those patients. Now I've been doing um, uh, pediatric uh, home health for about, I guess it's going on 10 years now, close to. And I mean, that's what I enjoy doing. Like, I enjoy being with the patient, taking care of them, being hands-on, knowing what I'm doing is helping them. You know what I mean? A doctor or even an, uh, a nurse practitioner, which is un, like just basically a doctor, but with the nurse title, you know, they don't get to do what we get to do. You know, they go in there, see the patient for five, 10 minutes, you know, look at some charts and prescribe medication. You know, they don't get to be there with them. They don't get to experience that person, uh, you know, make those connections with the person, with the family. You, I learned early also to that you do have to set some sort of boundaries because then you can get so connected with that person that every time you lose them, it's just devastating. At least that was my experience. But even then, the this last patient that I was with, I was with for six, like was with that family for six years. So even when they left the company and I had to go on with somebody else, like. I came home and I I I'll, I won't lie to you guys. I cried with my wife because I was like, I've been with this kid for six years and now he's like, he's not gone, but like I'm not gonna see him anymore, you know. So you become close with these people, especially in a setting like that, because you're in their home, you're you know with them all the time. So I mean, if you would love, to, if you would be willing to come back on, I know Michelle. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know, I'll speak for Michelle. You know, I know we would love to have you back on to hear love to. as many mm-hmm. stories as you want to tell us. And, you know, I had, um, I had done a podcast last year on, on, I, I've had uh, being experiences um, when I was camping out in the desert and I had one UFO experience, which was the Phoenix lights. And it was interesting when I, after the podcast uh, went on, and it was all UFO, and uh, someone commented, that's the hospice nurse that took care of my grandmother 25 oh, wow. years ago. There was this comment, and it was like, wow, how about that someone remembered me? And they said, ask him if he's the nurse that made cinnamon rolls. And uh, uh, we had a kitchen at our inpatient hospice unit, and, uh, you know, the, the family members are, you know, exhausted and freaking and scared and nervous and, and you know, we're taking care of the patients. I made the most wonderful um, cinnamon rolls. So I would roll out cinnamon rolls. So, yeah, you, know, you make the dough and you got to you know, take two hours for it to rise. And I could go take care of all my patients, you know, like two rounds of cleaning them up and taking care of them and, and dosing them with medication. Uh, do some charting, and then I'd go out and I roll out the cinnamon rolls and cut them, and then they have to rise again. I'd go back and take care of all my patients. So uh, finally, you know, after hours and hours, we baked cinnamon rolls, and I served the family. Um, you know, I fed them. You, know, you feed your patients, you feed yourself, feed those around you. The universe has brought these people to be in your presence. You know, give to them. And, you know, it was so nice because the family started supporting each other. You know, they had to have some family member, you know, go make some coffee and somebody be pouring milk and had somebody mix the icing and put the icing on the cinnamon rolls. And pretty soon all the families are now together as one group. 
uh, supporting each other and becoming friends and laughing and and uh, having such a good time. And she remembered the cinnamon rolls. And this is the second time this has happened. I went to a, a lecture once and somebody was talking about his, his grandfather was dying when he was a boy. And he remembers the nurse making cinnamon rolls. And I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was like the roof went off the building and, you know, ah, the rays were coming down on me. It was such a joy that somebody remembered that. And uh, I mean, It's very clear that, I mean, you're, you're making an impact by just being yourself and, and spreading kindness. And I, yeah, I don't know. I, I just have <laughs> loved every spirit second of this. Puts, and I, <laughs> Spirit puts everybody exactly where you need to be to do the work that you need to do. We do it as nurses. I, what do you do? I, I was a nanny for like the last oh, 10 years. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And then now I, I started my own business. So I'm kind of doing my own thing now. <laughs> but, you know, even if you go standing in line um, at a grocery store and um, six, seven people online and no one says anything to each other, you can send those vibrations out yeah. to uplift people. You're put in all these situations just to lift people up. And there's a secret I've to the universe that I figured out um, and I never read it in a book. But like a fraction of a second before you lift somebody up, before you see somebody in a higher light, you lift yourself up first. Just before you see somebody higher, brighter, grander, with a bright, beautiful future, you lift yourself up first. And you can feel that and, and, and start to pay attention to those feelings. Wherever it is that you go, you can lift something up. You don't have to say anything sometimes. Just you know, send some people some nice warm love yeah. and let them go. We've all got our work to do. Absolutely. And about the morphine. Okay, I know we're over. Yeah, no. Uh, oh, no, you're good. Um, yeah, I remember people saying the same thing. We're going, you're going to get grandma hooked on uh, morphine. I said, it's not like, she, you know, she's going to get out of bed and knock over a circle K for drug money. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I used to tell them that all the time. They go, yeah. well, I okay. guess not. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah it's cheap no. and it's effective and it works yeah. clean wonderful medication it yeah. serves a valuable purpose Definitely. yeah I, I mean it's like another another uh d-o-n that we had also like uh the majority of our patients are hispanic so obviously diabetes is is a very uh common uh illness and and you know hispanic in the hispanic community uh so a lot of times they wanted little candies and this and that. And she's like, give them the candy. They're in a nursing home. Let them be happy. They have insulin. We can give them insulin. You oh know what I mean? Gosh. Like, just let them enjoy themselves, you know? So, like, that's always kind of stuck with me as well. Um, so, I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, that makes that makes sense, you know? In hospice, there's very few no-nos. It's kind yeah. of fun. You get to, like, it's like spoiling your grandkids. <laughs> They're diabetic. They want some icing. Give it to them. I love that. Why yeah. not? Why not? Go out with a bang. Yeah. Well, this has been very enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so happy to get to share this time with you guys and whoever's watching. 
Yes. No, I mean, thank, thank you for, for, you know, taking your time and, and being with us and, and sharing your experiences. And, and like Eric said, we will most definitely have you okay. back on um, at some point for sure. Um, but usually at the end of the episode, um, um, I ask guests if they have anything to promote or if you, you know, want to, if anyone wants to reach out to you, like an email or, you know, whatever it might be, or you can say nothing at all if you just, um, but I, I did just start a channel um, on YouTube. I wanted to do it down home country cooking because that's what <laughs> I grew up on. I mean, uh, biscuits and gravy and all this stuff. Yeah. So I uh, started one, um, but a friend that I met on the internet said, you know, you need to be sharing some of these stories. So yeah. we made like little vignettes on those. And I've got like four of them on there. And But I'm going to be doing some cooking um uh, cooking shows and it's uncle dave's kitchen and i'm uncle dave and um it's going to be on youtube and what it is on youtube and, and um i think uh biscuits and gravy is going to be my first uh cooking cooking video i'm trying to figure out editing so uh, yeah. that's my challenge right now video editing it's always oh, a pain <laughs> Whenever you do get those biscuits and gravy episodes up, I'm going to have to try a recipe or something. Yes, definitely. I make them good. All right. I make them real good. good. I believe it. Yes. And I see so many people say, oh, you know, I can't afford to eat. I can't afford to eat anybody. You buy flour, grease, and milk. You got yeah. biscuits and gravy. Yeah. That'll fill your stomach. That's for sure. You can always eat. Yeah. Okay. But. Yeah. Um, so is that that's Uncle Dave's um, Uncle Dave's Kitchen on YouTube? It's on YouTube. YouTube, okay. okay. Four Great. shows, but they're all spirit shows. So cool. Woo! That was that was worth the wait, man. What do you think? Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I okay. So uh, and Eric kind of said this already at the beginning. But, uh, yeah, he had texted me. He's like, do you remember that dude with, like, this one story? I was like, yeah. And he's like, it's the same dude. I was like, like, the same dude? It's like, what? And, yeah, so it was super exciting um, to to have him on. And I am so glad that he gave that caveat of don't share my stories. Because, like you said multiple times in the episode, like, we would not have done it justice. And, yeah, that rawness and emotion just took it to another yeah. level yeah yeah i'm st- I, i'm like still rambling again just I, I don't know genuinely i feel like i always say this with my episodes but that was a great one hearing him talk i feel like we barely no, said I don't, anything I, yeah. but like <laughs> but not not because like oh he wouldn't let us talk but because they're like no you keep talking like let yeah, i just want to listen i feel like you just didn't um, want to interrupt because i had so many questions so i was just like okay let me let, let me let me yeah. let him finish first because yeah uh you don't want to interrupt the flow of of yeah it's because flow yeah if you interject you know you I feel like we would have just been killing the story. So I definitely wanted to yes. stay silent, let him talk and finish his story because it was, for me, they were very moving. They were very powerful stories. Oh, just yeah. like we mentioned, just, it was such tragedy. And then from that tragedy, you know, you get this, um, I don't know, just this, positivity out of it you know at the end so yeah yeah i just didn't want to interrupt that flow and and his emotions the you know i didn't want to kill that either and 
So that's why I just I, I shut yeah. my mouth, listened, and waited for yeah. the end to, to, <laughs> to get some questions in because, uh, yeah, uh, I kind of wish more people would share their stories with us from um, from Reddit. Um, you know, some people just just yeah, they're like, yeah, you can read it. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I mean, that that's fine too, you know. But you know, <laughs> it, it it just it's different when it's coming from the person that experienced it, you know, because they know what they felt in the moment. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that he's he's so adorable with the cooking show yeah. and, uh, like I when you're like, well, I want to meet in person, give you a hug. I was like, can you just be our <laughs> Uncle Dave? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what it, I, well, I see now why, you know, he made such an impact with the families of, of his patients and whatnot. Um, yeah, he made an impact in me, on me in like what the hour yeah. and a half that we were talking. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I definitely going to have him back on, um, because yeah, I know he's got that other experience that he was mentioning that's yeah. more UFO and I know based, he like but... briefly mentioned it but <clears throat> it'd be nice yeah. to go, get more into detail um and like I said I'd love to hear more of his uh of of his uh, nursing stories as well uh I just yeah. I think I feel like we could have talked forever this I was kind of afraid that we were going to I was like okay we we're <laughs> able to to yeah. reel ourselves in um but that just means, yeah, that we get to get multiple episodes yeah, out of here. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can't say anything else. It's just, you know, really enjoyed having him on. I'm glad the way. I hope you guys yeah, enjoyed no, that. No, I was just going to say, oh. I'm glad it worked out the way it did. It, it just was very, it just, it was funny how it worked out. And yeah, like Michelle said, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as we did. It wasn't any anything yeah. scary or creepy or anything like that, but there was very moving stories. Yeah, and lessons, life lessons. like beautiful life lessons, sprinkled throughout too. That I, I think that's kind of what got me too, because I feel like he was almost like sending mess. Like um, I, I can't, again can't speak for you, Eric, but I know to me it felt like he was kind of giving me these little messages that mm -hmm. I needed to hear. Well, all right, guys, if you would like to contact us, check out our website at webelievedyou.com. On the website, there's a tab where you can find all our social media, so make sure you go like, follow, and share on Facebook or Instagram. There's also a listen tab where you can listen to the show directly on our website or click the link to your favorite podcast listening site, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also give us a five-star rating on Apple, which helps us move up the ranks so more people can find us. And if you leave a review, we will read it here on the show. If you want to... If you want any of our merch, feel free to check out our merch tab where you can find a variety of designs on t-shirts, caps, and hoodies designed by Michelle herself. There's also a donate button if you really want to help us out. And finally, if you want to reach us besides DMing us on social media, you can click on the contact us tab where you can write in telling us that you want to be interviewed. We can keep you anonymous and only share the information that you want. You can also send in your stories for our stories of eye strangeness, and if you send them in in Spanish, we'll, we'll translate them for you as well. So don't be shy, guys. Share your stories with us because we believe. Do you 